Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak, and today I'll be speaking with Dinesh Sharma about his new book, The Outsourcer, the story of India's IT revolution. Dinesh Sharma is a journalist and author with 30 years of experience reporting on science, technology, and innovation. Dinesh Sharma, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you. So how would you describe the state of the Indian science and technology industry immediately after the fall of the British Raj? Yeah, I can say that uh, basic uh, infrastructure for scientific research existed when India gained independence in 1947. And one can say that it was not underdeveloped because uh, an Indian had already won a Nobel Prize in physics by then. And there were a good uh, number of uh, research institutions and universities. And there was a, a tradition of nationalistic educational movement which had resulted in some very fine centers like the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. And uh, there were centers funded by private uh, philanthropy organizations like the Tata Institute for Fundamental Research in Mumbai. And the British contribution was in the form of a string of uh, industrial uh, laboratories under the umbrella of CSIR, that is Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, just like which they had in uh, Britain. And, but this was mainly to boost their you know, war effort. So while science and scientific research uh, and education infrastructure was fairly good, engineering education was quite pathetic. There were just a few engineering colleges and the total uh, uh, intake was about 2,500 students per year and there was no post-graduation education or research in these engineering colleges and all they did was, you know, churn out engineers for government projects like irrigation, you know, road construction, railways, etc. However, uh, when India gained independence, as I said, in 1947, a blueprint for what India should do in terms of developing science and technology existed. This was very interesting because very few countries uh, in the British uh, Raj could have uh, had this kind of, uh, you know, uh, arrangement because uh, uh, in India, what was happening was that uh, the political leadership under the Nehru, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, who was to become the first prime minister, and uh, the scientific elite, which was very well connected with scientists in Western world, they were all members of, you know, uh, Royal Society, and you know, they were Western educated. So there was a kind of a partnership between the political leadership under Nehru and the scientific elite. So that's how this blueprint for scientific, you know, uh, science and technology development after independence was ready quite a few years uh, ahead of uh, 1947. So that advantage was there so that, you know, as soon as the country gained independence, the plan could be rolled out. You know, it, reading the book, it, it seems to me that there was a great tension going on in India in the first several decades after independence. I mean, from the private sector, particularly in the early years, it seems there was a great deal of energy and a great deal of movement forward in developing not only the technical education within India, but also developing the industrial capabilities to become a technical leader. But it seemed that the governments that kept coming in politically they almost kind of Jekyll and Hyde. In some instances, they were very interested in this development. And then in some instances, it seems that they were actively trying to either diminish or put roadblocks in the path of, of the development of the private sector. Um, could you talk about where that tension came from within the government and, I guess, the private sector? I mean, why, why did the Indian government, for 
really, let's say, up until the early 80s, seem rather ambivalent about the development of technology within the country. Yeah, you're right in a way because the tension which you're talking between the government and the private sector uh, really begins uh, uh, in the 60s, in the period from 1966 to 1980. But prior to that, what happened was that uh, uh, India took the path of uh, rather socialistic way of national development. We had uh, five-year plans just like Soviet Union. And uh, But however, there was a one key difference that while there was centralized planning and, you know, uh, a command and control kind of a situation where the public sector was given primacy over the private sector, India did not opt for a centralized economy. It opted for a mixed economy where the state-funded uh, public enterprises were given, you know, priority over private sector when it came to strategic areas, whereas certain uh, sectors of uh, industrial development were kept, kept apart for the private sector when they were allowed in light industries and, you know, services and a few other sectors. And Nehru was quite an open-minded person when it came to foreign technology, foreign know-how and foreign capital. For instance, when he visited America in uh, soon after, a few years after he took over as Prime Minister, and he was quite impressed with the Tennessee Valley project there and wanted uh, similar uh, River Valley projects to come up in India, and they did come up. His, big, his uh, thrust on big dams comes from there. And he saw IBM computers working in America and he wanted them to come to India and they did come and set up operations here. So the focus uh, was quite open during Nehru's period, but still the overall economy, the goal was to self-reliance. That was the objective, that India should become self-reliance. How do you do? There were, you know, quite a few differences of opinion, whether it should be done completely by closing, the, uh, closing all the options of uh, foreign know-how, foreign technology, to which Nehru was open, but later regime, particularly uh, his daughter, Indira Gandhi, who took over as Prime Minister two years after his death, in between we had another Prime Minister, she took over as Prime Minister in 1966. So she sort of closed the economy, she tilted towards the Soviet model in a far greater uh, measure. I was going to ask about that, because it seemed near the end of her life, she tipped her hand that she might have been a little bit more interested in seeing India develop more private sector economy than she did, say, at the beginning of her reign. The second part of her uh, political leadership, which begins after 1980, she tried to uh, change her policies, and that's when a lot of uh, liberalization, the pre-liberalization policies occur, uh, I mean, were announced by her, and she tried to undo quite a bit what she did in the 70s. But by then, India had already lost a decade because the technology has changed, had changed from mainframe to mini computer to almost PCs in the 1980s. And India had lost the opportunity to become a manufacturing, you know, destination for several countries. So and that was a lost decade, I must say. So is it fair to say that her son, Rajiv Gandhi, could be considered really the godfather of the modern Indian IT industry and really the man who finally set the tremendous human capital that existed in India loose on the world. Yeah, in a way, but I would like to put it in a, put it slightly differently because he played a critical uh, role in the long chain of events that led to, you know, a flourishing of the IT industry in the 1980s because uh, 
as uh, you mentioned and I also uh, talked about Indira Gandhi's uh, second uh, part of her career, I mean her prime ministership, uh, when she sort of uh, tried to undo several things and that's when Rajiv Gandhi came in as her advisor. Before he became prime minister in uh, 1984, he had sort of uh, started advising her on technology issues and that's why that's when the electronics policy was you know op uh, changed a new electronics policy came because till then the electronic items like even television sets and tape recorders were considered as luxury items that changed the duties came down so a lot of things had started uh, uh, changing before rajiv gandhi really took over in 1984 after indira gandhi's assassination when he became prime minister he had a new set of advisor all the socialist set of advisors were gone and uh, he had technocrats as advisor and for the first time there were people uh, coming from different backgrounds from particularly technology background who became his advisors like that's when Sam Petrodak became the technology advisor who was a expat Indian living in America and he wanted to develop a telecom you know uh, switch for Indian government the digital switch because the telephone system was quite archaic and several new things happened you know once Rajiv Gandhi took over the uh, new uh, computer policy was announced and there was a separate software policy was announced which specifically mentioned that uh, focus will be on software exports via data communication links because it was just a new technology which was just coming up and it was not in vogue that you know you could uh, 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 export software via satellite links. It was a completely new idea then in fact the UN agencies was just trying to you know help developing countries that how they can overcome the uh, problems of infrastructure associated with the you know, lack of physical infrastructure like roads, airports and things like that. So in one go just by the one uh, you know, policy that yes we can allow uh, software exports via data links, via satellite links and you could overcome all these you know hurdles of lack of physical infrastructure so that was a landmark decision which came in 1986 but still the exports did take some time to pick up but uh, the lot of groundwork which was needed for the industry to grow was uh, laid out uh, during Rajiv Gandhi's time the 90s is really really the first time probably in the in India started to seep into the western consciousness as a place where companies could find very amazing talent at fairly low, at a fair, for a fairly low wage. Um, did the liberalization that happened in the 90s, did that begin to draw, I guess, human and financial capital back to India from the India diaspora? Was that an important thing or was that movement already happening really even before the... Yeah, I think it was one of the several factors which came into play in the 1990s. Is and Quite a few other uh, companies came in, particularly Silicon Design. The, that was due to the fact that the policies had started changing, but the, it became a trend only in the 1990s that in terms of a large number of companies coming and setting up offshore centers or having a some kind of uh, outsourcing arrangement with Indian companies that happened in the 90s. But yes, diaspora played a catalytic role, I would say. They acted like a bridge between the American technology corporations and the talent uh, available in India because uh, see when uh, the India started churning out uh, good quality engineering graduates in the 60s and 70s from the Indian Institutes of Technology 
they could not be absorbed locally because the domestic industry was not ready to absorb them. And they were trained in an American engineering science fashion. So they were very, they were really ready for, you know, absorption in the American technology world by way of, uh, either by way of uh, direct employment or by way of, you know, higher education. So by the 90s, there was a good number of uh, uh, Indian engineers who were trained in India but were well entrenched in the Silicon Valley and other technology hubs of America. And by then, they had reached uh, mid to senior level management positions. So they knew and they were constantly, uh, you know, uh, in touch with uh, the ground realities in India. So the moment the ground changed, the government, the policies changed, they sort of, uh, they, they became the ambassadors for India within their own companies, for example, Intel, Microsoft, and several companies, Sun Microsystems and HP and several other companies which came around that time. They had Indians working in top management or technical positions. So they could convince their parent companies to come back. So that way, Indians might, uh, expats may not have brought in capital by themselves, but they played a role in convincing their parent corporations, their employers who were working there to come and, you know, explore possibilities in India. Well, let's talk about today. Uh, obviously, the Indian tech industry has prospered. It is a very strong part of one of the strongest economies in Asia, India right now. Uh, could you talk about some of the future challenges that India's IT industry could face in the coming decades? The model which uh, India, Indian software industry or the services industry has succeeded till now was based on uh, the two, three key advantages. One was that they had the talent pool, uh, engineers trained in you know world class organization or uh, educational institutions then the knowledge of english is often cited as an advantage and then their ability to manage large projects when it comes to outsourcing or when to and of course the labor uh, the the cost advantage if you look at uh, each of these advantages carefully one can see that you know these advantages are slowly eroding there are several me to players coming up in asia and elsewhere and it's not uh, uh, as if that india is the only option available for anybody who wants to outsource for example a lot of the voice based call center business outsourcing business and moved to philippines in the past say decade or so so there are uh, that erosion of advantages is already happening and the labor uh, the, the wages are also going up so labor uh, the cost advantage is also eroding to a great extent but uh, having said that the challenge for indian uh, and the, the, the graduates uh, which are coming out from indian engineering colleges are not employable straight away companies have to train them and uh, uh, keep them so besides all this what uh, is happening in the external world is also affecting India, in Indian industry, because the technology is changing fast. It is no more uh, you know, the coding work that is required. A lot of uh, uh, processes are getting automatized, and you know, uh, uh, machines can do much more work what the Indian companies could do. So all this, uh, the Indian companies are realizing, and they are trying to diversify. And another positive thing which has happened is that the domestic market has grown. So now there is a uh, huge market available for Indian products to be software products and other uh, products to be sold and services to be offered in India. So in view of all this, one can say that, you know, 
if uh, the Indian industry wants to remain competitive and remain in the business and continue to grow as it did in the 90s or the till in the 2000s, it will need to change because this uh, uh, service delivery model is not going to be around forever. Technology is changing, mobility is the key issue. There are, you know, the software as service option available and cloud computing is coming up. And, uh, you know, once quantum computing comes up, the whole uh, business of software might undergo a or change. So uh, the only way they can survive and retain their edge is to innovate. And that is happening, I would say, that is beginning to happen in the, in the, in the sense of an ecosystem being developed whereby, you know, uh, new ideas are being taken up and they are reaching out markets. There are big takeovers and mergers. And as somebody said, it's, it looks as if India currently is like Silicon Valley was in the 90s at the dot-com boom. So all those signs are there. Dinesh Sharma, the author of The Outsourcer, The Story of India's IT Revolution. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can like the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.